Aja Pinks. You are listening to Behind the Lens. Well, and thank you for that, Jar Jar Binks. Yes, indeed. You are listening to Behind the Lens. Welcome back to another episode. I'm Debbie Lida. I can't even talk today. Brian, Brian can't, can't get the CD right with the theme music. I can't talk. <laughs> I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Uh, you can read my interviews and movie reviews around the globe uh, in print and online at various outlets and, of course, on my website, movieshark.com. But you can find me right here on Adrenaline Radio every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, as we go behind the lens and below the line with film, television, music. And uh, I got news for you. We got a fun show today. We've got two filmmakers at the half-hour point, brothers, who, in terms of ingenuity, could rival the Duplass boys. Um, Jacob Kornbluth and Josh Kornbluth are coming to us to talk about love and taxes. I mean, we all know about death and taxes, and we are in the middle of tax season. But they've got a whole new spin on love and taxes. Uh, thanks in large part to Josh, who is a comedian, uh, and he has these. In- he has been doing incredible monologues. Uh, that are very timely, topical, personal, socially relevant. Uh, and he tunes in, draws on his own life experiences. And now the two brothers have teamed up Jacob's filmmaking skills with Josh's comedic and stage presence to put together Love and Taxes and how the two co-mingle, perhaps shouldn't co-mingle. It's, it, it is a hilarious film. But uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to both of the brothers uh, today. Jacob, I've interviewed before. Uh, He was the man behind Inequality for All, uh, the documentary starring Robert Reich, the former labor secretary to to Bill Clinton, and one of the most vocal and passionate people uh, giving us fiscal and political common sense uh, under the new administration and things to look out for and to learn. So it's going to be interesting talking to both of them. But before we get to that, Brian's been in here playing with a football. He's he's grieving over the fact that there is no football. Um, I don't know what else he's doing in there. Are you doing Star Wars? No, I am uh, posting on social media that we're on. But I got Star Wars loaded up if you want to go there. You do? I do. Well, we haven't done Star Wars Countdown for a couple weeks. It does feel like it's been a while. Yeah, why don't why don't we do a quick a Star Wars Countdown here? All right, yeah, we uh, we had some Star Wars news. Uh, I don't know when it was the last time that we talked about it, but we had um, a leak of what's the first thing that Luke says to Rey, and it's around the lines. I'm paraphrasing here. I didn't have it pulled up, but it was a uh, "Who are you?" So it kind of dispels those rumors whether he knows. Well, whether that's his daughter or not, I know everything is speculation online. But I, it, with that confirmation, it kind of shows that he would know if that's his daughter. Obviously, um, you know the Jedi's are able to feel when someone's near. Well, them. you would be able, you would think that with his Jedi skills, he would know no matter who comes up to him. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, unless it's somebody that that he's never you know encountered like that, but. Or he would at least sense the force within her. So yeah, that's going to be interesting. That that's a leak, whether it's true or not. Yeah, that I've, that's. I mean, it led to a, a a list of other things that could have happened because now, is she force sensitive? Uh, she has to be. Obviously, she showed 
uh, obviously of it, but it, why is he not recognizing it uh we find out that the last jedi is a plural it can it's singular and plural yeah. so uh one of the italian posters made it so it's the last jedis mm-hmm. they don't say jedis i mean now we have plural so it's not the last <laughs> jedi and um but on top of that we have to get to this movie which is going to happen on uh December 15th 2017 so it's this year mm-hmm. we have 276 days 12 hours and 54 minutes to go until the the release of this film which is uh so at some point in the last obviously 3 weeks we we dipped under the 300 day mark yeah it's 9 months from Wednesday today's March 13th and, so it's 9 months and i could tell you from uh Remember when we were counting down Rogue One? Yes. When we got below 300 days, it just quickly just it came sped here. along. And uh, interestingly enough, speaking about Rogue One, that's coming out on Blu-ray. If not this, not this week for sure, but next week I think it's finally dropping on 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 um, a Blu-ray. You can pick it up. And will you be buying it, Brian? Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of. I'm kind of tempted. I, I don't know which which one uh, which retail I want to buy it from because Best Buy ha- always has those cool steel steel book yeah editions. But I, I like to go to Target. And it also depends who has what special uh, special features. Uh, yeah, sometimes Best Buy will have like a, a certain special feature, and then, and then Target will have their own. Uh, it just depends on what you're looking for, but I'm going to pick it up at Target most likely. But you know, that's that's how Disney makes money. Yeah, I put, I picked up because we all because those diehard fans will want both. Yep. 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 I I actually did double dip on on the Star Wars Force Awakens. I have a the Target exclusive, uh-huh. and then I bought the. Best Buy exclusive not too long ago with oh. Kylo Ren's face on the cover. Oh. Still searching for the BB-8 one from Walmart. That one completely sold out the day that it came out. I went looking for it because I was... The world loves BB-8. Everybody wants BB-8. So I, I couldn't find any of that, but that's that's Star Wars. So, I mean, if it, there's news almost every every day coming up. Well, and there, there's a, a push on social media for Carrie Fisher's dog, Gary. To make an uh, appearance? To make an appearance on Star on Star Wars Nine. Well, uh, Star Wars Nine, yeah. Well, they're they're doing reshoots. They're still working on it. So Who it's knows? Not really done, yeah. And we've never had a real dog in any Star Wars series. They're all creatures, but we ne- we've never had a dog. Well, maybe because it's a long time ago and dogs haven't formed on any life form yet. Mm-hmm. Could be. Yeah, so I'm excited for this. I'm ready to go. Could be. Well, something that I'm excited for is a new Disney Channel TV series. Um, It is absolutely adorable. It is charming. It is fun. It's called Andy Mac. It dropped on on Disney Digital on Friday. Uh, It will be on Disney Channel on April the 7th. It is, you know, we don't have cartoons anymore. And as I told the producers and as as I told uh, the actors whom I interviewed this past week, you know, this is this is the kind of show I want to binge watch. I want to curl up on a Saturday morning since I don't have cartoons, curl up on a Saturday, watch this show over and over again with my cats piled on top of me. It is that much fun. And, okay, I'm almost 59 years old, and I think it's fun. So, and uh, I know some younger people that have already seen a couple episodes, and they are just enamored with it. So I had while I had a chance to let me give you a premise. It, the, it's actually created by Terry Minsky, who was the brains behind Lizzie McGuire, and Michelle Manning, who was the producer of iconic films of the '80s like Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles. So you have these two women coming together with the meeting of the minds to deliver Andy Mack. So you know 
that they know about teens. They understand bringing these life stories to the screen. Uh, so working together, they have now developed this Andy Mack, and it's a coming-of-age story. It starts with uh, the main character, Andy Mack, played by newcomer Peyton Elizabeth Lee. This is her first big outing, and she is absolutely perfection in the role. They did an amazing job casting. Um, but it's the eve of her 13th birthday. And she wants to strike out on her own. Her older sister has been out on her own for a while. She has her best friends who are with her. Her best friends, uh, Cyrus, Buffy, um, and then the boy that, of her affections, who doesn't really give her the time of day initially, Jonah. Um, it's, it's typical teen stuff, but it's fun. Uh, in addition to Peyton, our friend Joshua Rush, my friend Joshua, who's going to be on the show in a couple weeks to talk about Andy Mack. Joshua plays best friend Cyrus. Sophia Wiley plays bestie Buffy Driscoll. And yes, folks, there are Buffy the Vampire Slayer jokes within the episodes. Um, so there is something for the generations. Lauren Tom is wonderful as Celia Mack, uh, mother of older sister Bex and Andy, and uh, then Stoney Westmoreland. You see him pop up in things all the time. He plays dad, and uh, once again, he's one of those one of those actors that is a believable dad, is the dad that you really want to have, the dad that will go against mom sneakily and protect his girls and give them what they want. So just a fun, fun show. But in the first episode the wheels start turning for the future episodes as a big revelation is made uh, in that. And since it's already out there, I, it's not a spoiler to tell you. Andy finds out that her mother, Celia, is not her mother. Her mother is really her older sister, Bex. Uh, and that is how episode one ends and then sets off the rest of what plays out for the first season. So, let me let you hear some of what the producers, Terry and Michelle, had to say during our conversation, talking about Andy Mack, and starting with how the show even came to be. You two are masters. <laughs> between, no, she is. Well, between the two of you, I mean, you pick up the great comedy back in the 80s of The Breakfast Club, 16 Candles. In the 90s, we're picking up Lizzie McGuire. So now melding the prior generations, the two of you have combined forces and brought this together for the 21st century. I would say. I hope it's. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, like that, I, I know what she's brought to it, and she seems to think she knows what I brought to it. And now I think that you probably are right. So thank you. <laughs> I, it just, the, the comedic sensibilities that the two of you have brought to the table over the years, there was never forced comedy. There was never forced drama. Everything stems out of the inherent nature of life and, pe and people being people and interactions, which makes all of your storytelling effortless, very organic. I don't know if I'd say effortless. <laughs> if it looks, <laughs> if it looks that effortless, be, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's the magic. Yeah. Of it's supposed. Movies. It's supposed to look effortless, but it isn't. Yeah. So, where? What prompted you at this stage now to come up with Andy Mack? 
and bring this little gem to us. <laughs> I want to have a story worthy of this question. Um, <laughs> hey, you can say, I got bored. No, no, it wasn't that. It was it was actually a very flattering request from Gary Marsh, the president of the Disney Channel, saying, you know, we're looking for something new, different. You know, we want to know what you have. Do you have any ideas? And I was like, yeah, I do. But the reality is this idea was you know, came from a, a profile that I read several years ago about Jack Nicholson. This is Jack Nicholson's story. <laughs> I know, it's the Disney Channel. We do the Jack Nicholson story. But anyway, it was, it, it, you know, he was raised um, thinking that, I mean, that his mother was his sister and his grandmother was his mother. And I guess found out later in life he was not... Teenage girl ever, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we know of. Know. It's Jack Nicholson. Anything is possible. Right. I know. And just <laughs> praying that he never reads this. But um, I think um, what was great is that that they went for it. You know, I mean that they went for it was the miracle. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's it's like I had an idea and I was lucky enough to get Michelle as a partner, which, again, that was another gift from Disney. I just met (laughs) Michelle on this. It was kind of like, hey, we have this producer. uh, You should meet her. And it was, now I just don't want to know any other producers. You know? I just don't want want anything, and I want to put her in a little (laughs) little happy castle every night and make sure she's safe. Anyway, I I think... um, yeah, it's been. I'm and I'm kind of like not the person who feels the most comfortable saying I'm happy and this has been a good experience because I'm very superstitious. But the fact is, I'm happy and this has been a good experience. It shows on screen. She's never really happy. It shows, on, <laughs> but it shows on screen as this being a very good experience behind the camera. You don't get this kind of result in front of the camera without joy behind it. You really don't. That's true. That's true. But she was the one on set, and I think that is something that I I didn't fully understand um, how much, you know, it's not just the cast. It's that crew. It's that crew that they're just, you know, doing project after project, and she made them feel like, no, this is the project. There is no other project. Where's that from? (laughs) I know it's a movie line, but anyway, it was, um, yes, there was joy, and she really gets all the credit, because I was mostly in Los Angeles with the writing staff, and she was in Utah Mm -hmm. with the cast and crew and directors. and And... That's what Terry had to say about creating. And as you can tell, just from the joviality and the chemistry between the two, there is a great joy that they have, and you do see it reflected. But, you know, this is they were filming in Salt Lake City, Utah, live action, single camera. Um, Michelle being on set, you know, it's, she's wrangling the crew and the casting. So how do you bring all this together, you know, once you have the creation in place. I've got to ask you, the production values, 
especially with the detail that has gone into Andy's shack, even Andy's bedroom, things like that, that they're not glossed over. The set decoration and every element in there, and then all of Andy's little artistic DIY projects, you know, are just fabulous. You know, was that, how difficult is that finding the right crew members who can then bring all of that to life? Well, the pilot, um, we had somebody that I had worked with before that Terry met um, and fell in love with, and she sort of set the tone for that. And then when we got picked up, they had us go to Utah, which, you know, I'm not going to lie. At first, it was like, Utah? I've never... I mean, I've shot everywhere. I've shot all around the world in my life. <laughs> I never, ever shot in Utah. And, I didn't um, want to. I didn't, like... I, I'm like, I'll go to Vancouver. I'll do this. I'll, you know, Utah? I've never, like... Anyway, we got a great crew. And this crew, everybody on the crew would read the scripts. Mm. Everybody on the crew... That, when we shot that first episode, and literally, you, I watched, like, down to the person who pulls cable, when they heard, I'm not your sister, I'm your mother, so it was just like, and we had that crew in the palm of our hands, like, they, they, will, they would die for us, they will do anything for us, they love this show so much, they love these kids, they love the, I mean, and I feel like that, <clears throat> and the fact that we were in Utah, meaning we didn't go home at night. We didn't have our other friends, our other fam- like our family. You know, everybody became a family, and that's what you're seeing on screen. They all truly love each other, and when we weren't working, they were together. I mean, like if somebody, it was that thing on a set that is, you, you know, it's working when people have wrapped and they stay, or people aren't working that day and they come to set. Oh. Mm-hmm. But but in L.A. you don't do that because you have your everyday life in L.A. You're in Utah. What else? I mean, I don't know because I didn't do anything in Utah except <laughs> shoot the show. But um, I, I know there's other things to do there. But, like, if somebody wasn't on the call sheet, they'd come to set because they'd want to hang out with their friends. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I never – there was never a time where I was sitting in the hotel room alone because we were, you know, working all the time. Mm-hmm. But um, for the actors, like, if they didn't – they wanted to be with – the group they wanted to be part of the herd and mm-hmm. you know come on down so and it is quite a herd in front of and behind the camera um you will hear more in the coming weeks from some of the talent uh in andy mac including the fabulous joshua rush who will be joining us live uh i think either the last monday in march or the first monday in april but uh, our regular listeners, you know, you've heard Joshua before when he was on about his film Breakpoint. And it was also just before he was starting to do voicing on Disney's animated series, The Lion Guard. Um, so Joshua is also becoming a Disney favorite. So I can't wait for that. But I'll tell you, check the show out. You know, it's being billed as for ages 6 to 14 and families. This truly is. It is a show you that families can sit down and watch parents you don't have to worry about what's happening on the screen um it is this is this is excellent excellent family programming uh and i can't recommend andy mack highly enough and i have to tell you a face to look out for is 
Asher Angel, who plays Jonah Beck. He looks like a young Mackenzie Aston, and he just leaps off the screen. So there is my television viewing tip. Uh, all of my interviews will be coming out sporadically over the next couple weeks in various places with uh, each of the cast members and, of course, the full interview with Terry and Michelle. Two really, they, they are true legends in film and television. So it is a joy to see the two of them finally hook up together to, to work on this project. So moving on from family-friendly Disney... We're going to go demon hunting again. We didn't get to talk that much, and you didn't get to hear that much uh, from Dolph Lundgren last week because of the breaking news about Robert Osborne's passing. So we're going to go back to Don't Kill It and let you hear about hear my exclusive interview with Dolph talking about creating this character of Jebediah uh, and becoming a demon hunter. And Brian, I think we're, we'll actually just start with clip two which is how he approached getting into the character. Because this is a departure from typical action, even though you've got some action here, Mm. how did you approach getting into this character? Because it is a little different. It's very different. You know, like, yeah, the way I do it, you should read the script uh, a few times. You can actually read it. You kind of start feeling it out and see if if any if you can make some choices, because it's kind of a little bit about the choices where, you know, this guy obviously has written, speaks, has a bit of a southern accent in the writing, you know, and that kind of brings on some mannerisms, and then with the wardrobe and the, uh, you know, uh, it kind of just grows into, the more you do it, like, I had, I was lucky here because I had a lot of time to work on it because the movie was postponed twice, so you kind of, you know, when you do those big monologues, you know, 25, 30, 30, 40 times, whatever it is, to memorize them, you know, you, you find the little idiosyncrasies and you find little things that that makes the person kind of unique, like a unique person, like we're all unique, you know, but if you have to rush through a character and just, you, you end up generalizing and then it becomes kind of bland, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it just becomes, there's nothing that stands out. But it, it takes a lot of work to come up with little idiosyncrasies and, and behavior and stuff like that and really so I had maybe nine months to work on this guy and like I said to somebody else Stanislavski I think said it takes nine months for a baby to develop and nine months for you to develop a character and I think a lot of great characters in cinema if you say took Rocky Balboa I'm sure it's like working that for a year or something and that's why have the ball, you have the hat, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, the way you got to talk you know, you know this is, anybody can imitate you know um um, you know, uh, uh, Rocky Balboa or Scarface or whatever it is, right? And those guys took a lot of time to work on it. So this is our little, my little kind of introduction to working on, on a film character in that way. So Ivan Drago I worked on for a long time. But, you know, that, and Mike had a lot of great ideas about the coat and the hat and the, you know, the, um, the vaporizer and things. So there you go. And, of course, once you get into character and you're filming in small-town Mississippi, what do you do? You go out amongst the locals. And this anecdote from Dolph about his experience in a diner, I just I just have to share it with you. You know, what was funny was I just remember the first day I showed up on set. I already tried the costume, I think, the night before, two nights before. And it was early in the morning in this little town, you know, in Mississippi, right? Yeah. And I showed up, and I was with my friend of mine, and... 
you know, they said, oh, we don't need you for two hours. We haven't had any breakfast. So I went to this little breakfast joint, and I'm wearing this costume. You know? I mean, not the hat, but I, and they didn't even blink. Really? You know? they, uh, you guys want to get seated? <laughs> they didn't even blink. Oh, had all the symbols. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> so it was well designed for yeah, that totally. part of town. And when you see Dolph as demon hunter Jebediah in Don't Kill It, you will you will see the humor into why he was laughing and that nobody batted an eye at him walking around this town. But, you know, along with Don't Kill It, and we had gotten into this a couple weeks earlier with when director Mike Mendez was with us live, but I asked Dolph and Mike more about, you know, we had a great discussion on blood. Blood, horror blood versus action blood. Have you ever done a movie with this much blood? I don't even think there was this much in any of the Expendables. No, I think it's up there. Stallone likes blood as well, but <laughs> yeah. I think that this one was probably up there. Yeah, I think so. You know, the buckets of it. In the old movies, there is a lot of blood around because they didn't have any CGI, you know, so Rocky IV had a lot of blood, actually, in the ring, I remember, yeah. But, and, uh, and I think, you know, oddly enough, and again, this is, you know, super minutia, but I think there's a little bit of a difference between action blood and horror blood, the, yeah. way, the way it's kind of used, you know, because action is kind of more squib hits, you know, it's like little bursts. This, because it, you know, had a kind of horror element. Okay, you haven't would... worked on a sly film with blood. There's, <laughs> there's no little squib. Okay, right, yes, totally. But no, the, the, this year we, we, we got to the, the sprays, you know, and they, the, the cuts of the severed limbs and, and, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, Dolph is no stranger to severed limbs. We've seen some Red Scorpion. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I think we, we got the best of both worlds to, to kind of have action kind of violence and horror violence. And so it kind of made this hybrid of, of a, you know, of a, you know, a, a cacophony of blood. It was a beautiful thing. And of course, for my money, you can never have too much blood. And that is a discussion that I had with James Gunn and Greg McLean on their upcoming film, Belko Experiment, which comes out this Friday, which uh, hopefully next week you'll hear some of my interview, ex- some of my excerpts of interviews with uh, Gun and and Greg McLean, uh, because it is it is truly a blood filled. It is a bloodbath of multiple of multiple proportions. But you know, Dolph Lundgren, as as he's been alluding to, and as he's gearing, uh, looking for ahead in his career, because your body can only take so much as an action hero. He's working on character development and doing more character driven roles, but also he's getting into directing. Uh, upcoming, he's going to be directing the one uh, Nordic Light and Wanted Man, and he's also writing, you know, Wanted Man himself. So he's really branching out. But I had to ask both he and Mike, since they were with me uh, together, you know, what will you take with you from the experience of making Don't Kill It, and what you learn about yourself in the process? So now, as you sit back and reflect on the process of making this film, mm-hmm. what? Did, what, will you, what did each of you learn that you're going to take with you into your next projects? Especially you, Dolph, as you're jumping into more directing. Uh, well, I mean, I learned, you know, that if you have something special, you know, you have to guard, you have to safeguard that, and you have to protect that. There were some special qualities in this script that everybody loved, you know. Um, one, and I think that I also learned that I can hold a screen doing other things that perhaps I didn't believe that I could do it before this, but I know now that I can. And that confidence has helped me a lot in other things I'm doing now and, mm-hmm. and I'm doing in the future, you know? 
Um, I think those were the big things I took with me. Yeah, uh, for me, I mean, I, I don't know if I necessarily would say learn it, but it certainly confirmed the importance of collaboration. You know, how much it, you know, it's a team effort, and how much it's so important for your collaborators to to be on the same page and work together. And uh, about teamwork, you know, it was really, uh, you know, if the team, if the whole team wasn't on board, uh, pushing pushing forward, we wouldn't have been able to pull it off. But thankfully, everyone was on the same page, and everyone wanted the best thing, which was the best film. And we all worked together and had each other back and it's so much better than when you have the producer who feels they know better and feels ah that's not going to work you should do that you know yeah we didn't have that we everyone was working working forward and as always that just reminded me how important that is and how invaluable that is and also i read somewhere i think david putnam you know the british uh, producer uh-huh. who did chariots and fire whatever hey, i read this i read this little book by him independent filmmaking like many years ago and he had a couple of rules for for a successful indie movie and one was you have to have a uh, a very you have to have a great script and it says okay what's a great script a great script's a script everybody agrees that it doesn't need any rewrites <laughs> right. that's, this was a script like that. Right. Once you're done, once we presented it, right. nobody had any problems with the script. Yeah, not totally. Because normally there's always, well, what about this? Well, what about that? But there was none of that. Everybody was just delighted. Everybody right. showed up and said, whoa, what a great script. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that's, he was smart like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And that was Dolph Lundgren and Mike Mendez talking about Don't Kill It. It's still in limited theatrical release around the country, but it's also available at digital platforms and VOD. It is the ride of your life, and if sales are good enough, you can expect to see Dolph coming back as Jebediah, the demon hunter. So, again, another winner. All you horror fans out there will love it. Action fans are going to love it. And if you just want a really good chuckle, it's got some good laughs in there, too. And right now I see Brian Brian playing with playing with the phones. And you gonna bring them on? Okay. Ah, and we have joining us now two very special guests that I'm so excited to have. Jacob Cornbluth and Josh Cornbluth. Welcome to Behind the Lens, guys. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having us. <laughs> oh we're I... different places we're different places, my my brother and me, so it's exciting that we're in, we're like three voices in the void. <laughs> well, I'm thrilled to have you. And Jacob, it is so good to talk to you again. I mean, we had an incredible interview along with Robert a couple of years ago at the London Hotel for Inequality for All. That's right. Good to talk with you again. Thanks for having me back. Oh. I must not have messed it up last time. Oh, good heavens, no. Hey, you even got a print. You even got a, you know a multi-page print feature out of that. So, <laughs> but it, this is this is so exciting to have both brothers here. As I said at the top of the show, the two of you, what you have what you have delivered here. I mean, you really you're right up there with the Duplass brothers, with the way wow. with the way that you're working and the way you're bringing things to life. And thank you. That's wow. That's really nice. And I think. I think we're also, if I can say, as cute as the Duplass brothers as well. I think in our own scruffy way. Well, they have their scruffy way. You have your scruffy way, and I have to agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, actually, that's a very nice thing to say, Courtney, because they're such uh, icons of making films um, on a personal level that have some comedy and, and, and also um, speak to 
kind of some real emotional truth. So thank you for making that comparison. Well, you know, love and taxes, you know, everybody's heard about death and taxes, but you don't really associate love and taxes until you start seeing your monologues, Josh, which are just, they are so original. I just love what you do with them. And then you've got a free form comedic styling, you know, you mm-hmm. play on neuroses that everybody has, but you take them to the nth degree. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe you don't take them to the nth degree. Jacob will have to weigh in on that one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> but thanks. Yeah. It, it's, um, you know, the, the connection for this is Josh, you know, the connection for me of love and taxes, it came about sort of the way I described it in the movie. It, it is, it is not like I would have been a death and taxes guy originally, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and, um, and so it really was through this event, a series of calamitous, somewhat, you know, super stressful events involving taxes and citizenship and stuff that I actually finally made that connection. And so it really is, as we sort of talk about in the beginning of the film, but really, it, it really is tax law that led me to this understanding of love. And that's really weird. <laughs> there you have it. Okay, well, for me, it was not weird at all. Because my significant other for many years was also my CPA. (laughs) I I know. I know. But it was always, if I would, I mean, I would be like Josh and be totally stressed out. I mean, the first time he started doing my taxes, I'd been doing my own and I didn't think they were too complex. But then I, all of a sudden I had 1099s and W-2s. Yeah. And I said something one day. About putting it all on schedule Schedule C or, some, or Schedule A, and he's like, "What are you doing?" And it's like he put the fear of God in me that I'm going to screw something up, and the IRS is just going to like cut off my life. And I think it's amazing that you you made it through that. I can't drive next to my wife with my wife making commentary on my driving to to actually sort of basically be audited by my partner would be no that 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 was a high level of stress you put up with. Well, you know, and the fact that that conversation originated sitting in a bar and we were drinking, I think that helped <laughs> alleviate the yeah. stress level. Um, it helped a lot well, of conversations think, in my experience. <laughs> and, so, and, you know, I, I think that the story, though, that you're touching on, you know, in both of your last questions is, is you know, um, is center to our film. I mean, it, what happens in the monologue that Josh describes is essentially true um to to his experience and you know one of the characters says that he takes the chaos of his life and sort of streamlines it into a story Mm -hmm. in a way and that's sort of how his storytelling works and that's really how the film happened i mean a lot of people you josh me you know we all are struggling with taxes i mean josh has done stories about sex and one and this one about taxes and he says that people come up to him with much more confessional stories about the tax stru- struggles than they've had than they ever did about, you know, sex. It's yeah, tax is way more of a, to talk of a, about of a taboo, taboo taxes than it is to talk yeah. about sex. So, um, so, you know, that's what made the film such an interesting project to turn into a film. Well, and everything, also, everything you have in there, guys, is something that everyone can relate to. You've got a partner that... Well, you got to get your tax and your money situation straight straightened yeah. out, or we're not going ahead. There's no future for us, and I think everybody feels that. But you present it in this great way that 
we can take a breath and we can laugh at it because Josh, you have all the angst for all of us. <laughs> it, it, it's a, don't don't mention it. it. It's my pleasure to carry all that angst. But yeah, it's really um, I love what you're saying about about our movie because it really just jives so much with the spirit that Jake and I made it in. You know, it, it, the idea is really it's it's really about I mean movies telling stories. You know, they're communal collective experiences, and in its own way, so is tax paying. It certainly. It certainly is citizenship is, and it's a part of that. And yeah. it's sort of like bringing those two together in this weird, unexpected way. That's what we hoped would happen in a movie theater, you know? Well, and what the two of you also do, you've got a very key line in there at the end where you're going to mail, you know, after you've gotten over the shock and you're mailing out your checks um, to pay the IRS and, and pay Franchisee. Yeah. God, I hate Franchisee. Mm. They're worse than the IRS. Um, but yeah. <laughs> but you, you actually mentioned you're walking past this school and you're walking past that school and you make the, the very bold and true statement, my tax dollars pay for this. Yeah. These, these beneficial things. And, and, you know, you have these wonderful messages throughout this film. Well, thanks. I mean, I know Jake a lot when we were making the film and when we were planning it talked a lot about sort of what it was to come from the fringes or be on the fringes of society and then reach some point sometimes in a relationship or with a family or just you get to a certain age where you realize that you actually need to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, now, what gave you the idea to take, J- Jacob, what, what gave you the idea to take Josh's stage show, turn it into a film, and then dramatize, <laughs> you know, take this auto- autobiographical theater and then dramatize yeah. certain aspects of it. You know, I, this had to be somewhat of a complex process <laughs> yeah. as to what you dramatize, what you don't dramatize, you know, and then getting into your editing process to develop your flow. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think um, I think the, uh, the sense that there is, um, uh, that it's a very personal story. It's sort of like the story of an everyman who could be any of us who is having trouble financially or paying his taxes or figuring out how to plug into the system. And then sort of, you know, in some way or another, figuring out, like as Josh said, that we have some sort of shared responsibility. So I really love that story, which is part of the, which is at the center of the monologue. But the question is, how do you take a one-man show and turn it into a movie? Mm-hmm. And it really turns mm-hmm. into this, this um, it really turns into this challenge of how do you take this voice and put you right in the perspective of the character. And then we staged a bunch of scenes. You know, we, we show him on stage performing the piece, and then we staged a bunch of scenes that are um, what you might call comically subjective, like they're sort of seen through, as you might see the scenes through Josh's eyes. And that blend um, of how to reenact what was happening in my head as I watched his show on stage was really kind of the secret to, to making the film. And... Um, what I'm really proud of in the film, just from a film, just from a cinematic perspective, is this adaptation story. The things that you know, maybe Spalding Gray, you might have Spalding Gray might have struggled with 20 years ago mm-hmm. in adapting solo shows. I feel like we were dealing with some of those same challenges, and I think found some different answers and ones I'm, I, I felt were pretty innovative as far as how to sort of capture both the live show and do it cinematically. And mm-hmm. I feel like um, I'm very proud of that. Well, what were some of the? Me too. What were some of the approaches that you took, Jacob, to develop the cinematic 
look in terms of determining what to dramatize, what not to dramatize? Because that's very key with yeah. this story. Well, you know, it, it, it sort of started from this place of um, keep the funny stuff in, essentially. You know, it started <laughs> from, like, where the jokes were. Um, and sometimes when Josh is on stage, you have a sense, like, this, this story is about essentially a, a passive protagonist, somebody who isn't taking action, isn't paying their taxes. And it turns out that seeing him on stage is someplace where he's very active. So he can tell active jokes about how he is... Uh, you know, sort of not paying his taxes on stage sort of best. Mm -hmm. And then there was some scenes about him being sort of acted on by the world, and those were the ones we really wanted to dramatize. We really wanted to see um, what it was like to work for a big tax attorney when you are not paying your taxes and show that tax attorney. And we really wanted to show how he gets sucked into a system because, um, because really this story is about sort of connecting to other people. We wanted to make sure that we showed how those connections can be positive and 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 not, but it was it was quite an organic process actually because um, yeah because really when you're making a comedy what you're really after is finding the best way to make it funny and mm-hmm. stay true to the story. So we we recorded the whole live show and then we sort of peppered in the the dramatized scenes you know kind of as needed. So mm-hmm. that's how it worked. Now, who wrote the dramatized scenes? Did you write them, Josh? Did you work on them together? Yes, yes. I, I wrote them. Uh, I wrote them, and, and it, it's, I find it very. I develop my monologues through autobiography, through um, improvisations of mm-hmm. my autobiography. So I just go on stage and I improvise and I improvise until eventually I have a show. Um, usually working with a great director, <laughs> theater director, and so and and it, it's always been very challenging to me that a, in a script you actually have to sit in a room by yourself with no audience and write, write scenes. So I did write them and um, and and you know I, I formatted them correctly. I tend to be very anal. I used to be a copy editor, so I, I get obsessed with just the exact right formatting and stuff. And um, it, it's quite a neurotic process for me to actually turn out uh, a scene uh, on a, in a screenplay. But yes, um, I did that. And then we also had a few readings that we did uh, with actors where we would see how it sounded, uh, you know, and how it sounded in front of people. So, um, and then it was amazing. It, the only two times that I've really been acting with other people as opposed to doing a one-man show are the two movies that Jake and I have made, our Haiku Tunnel and then this one, Love and Taxes. And it's it's really quite it's quite a, 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 a mind blowing experience to write to write a couple of lines and then say one of them and then have someone else say it back to you and then have it be like recorded on. So I'm realizing I'm just simply describing the process of filmmaking from day one, but I find it miraculous. Well, well, I should say if I could if I could add to that just just a little bit, the, the movie took eight years to make. Um, even though uh, I hope you don't feel that when you watch it, um, it's it took a long time, and part of that was shooting one scene at a time and being, it was a pretty kind of back-and-forth process between seeing what worked and what we needed to add over those eight years mm-hmm. to kind of find the exact balance. Um, and it's, it certainly was, had a little bit of what Josh talks about in terms of how he developed his live show, which is you keep showing it and you keep going back and refining it until the balance works just right. Well, and something that works very right in the film are the people that you cast for the dramatized sequences. Uh, you know, Helen Schumacher is ideal as Mo Glass, and all I keep thinking every time I see her is Lauren McCall, Lauren McCall, and you can just see her 
just crisp to the point and just putting Josh in his place. And of course, who is ever going to dispute any word that comes out of her mouth? Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's, she's amazing. And, and such a, um, fierce and still presence on screen. And it, in, a, in a way, in the casting process, you're looking for elements that balance out with Josh, who has like a very, um, you know, chaotic energy. So mm-hmm. you're looking for somebody who's very focused to kind of contrast to that. And she's ideal in that way. Well, and that's where Sarah Overman comes in as well, who plays the lovely Sarah. I mean, she's got her own neuroses and OCD, but you know, it's she just it's a perfect that is a perfect melt. That ebb and flow between Sarah and Josh is just fan it is fantastic. Yeah, thanks. I mean I think um I think Sarah was also Sarah was also in Haiku Tunnel as well, as was Helen Shoemaker. So these were actors who, even though um uh it it's been a while between the films, we had sort of um we had a comfort level with. Josh had a comfort level with, so it was just, um, it was really something. They sort of found it together. I mean, the, the sort of rehearsals with Sarah and Josh felt like sort of um, working with an old friend in a way. It felt sort of like their energy together was, um, was uh, you know, something that had been lived in and had taken place over a long period of time, and I think it really helps their relationship. Mm-hmm. And then you, then you get somebody with, with the wealth of experience of Harry Shearer, and, of course, you bring in Robert Wright, um, that that casting of Robert is just ideal as the IRS commissioner. You know, um, it, yeah. Well, thank thank you. I think um, I think for in his case, and it's a it's an interesting piece because in between, uh, you know, I've I've made Inequality for All, right. a feature film with him, which we talked about at the beginning of the show, and I've also about to finish another film with him called Saving Capitalism, um, that will be out later this year. But it's interesting. I met him making this film, making Love and Taxes, Josh reached out to him and we um and we uh you know cast him in this film and through meeting him on this film that was how we wound up working together all this time so i have josh to thank for that wow you know that and that scene with robert it's very striking um and i'm curious josh the dialogue for that scene you know where robert actually comes out and says you know you are the man you are the one who can make the change you know it is that is is timely today more timely today than ever i think was that you know how did you come about designing that particular scene it's josh is josh there there uh oh well i can try to answer if he <laughs> we might have lost him well the um, a line still open so i don't know where he went he lost us <laughs> but you can try well, and answer jacob yeah, well, I will. Um, it, it, it was um, amazing to have a former Secretary of Labor and a sort of uh, leading political figure, you know, leading political intellectual, cast in the role of the um, of the former IRS commissioner for the movie, who Josh goes and tries to get to solve his big tax problem. And hey, Jake, um, if you'll excuse me, can you guys hear me again? Now we can. Yeah, now you are. You know what I yeah, did? Please. This is very professional of me. I realized my cheek hit the mute button and i was so i was like talking and nothing was coming out i didn't didn't interrupt you but and jake's answer was a lot more cogent than mine uh would have been but but um just to add to that it was really uh the turning point of the film it's the turning point of the story the Mm -hmm. story is that you're josh's character my character his sort of rational rationalization for messing up 
his rationalization for not taking responsibility is that everything is the man's fault mm-hmm. and the system's fault. And and so he really he really needs someone to with the weight you know, of the sort of a God, a tax God, you know, he needs someone to tell him, no, you're absolutely backwards on that. And so that was really, that was a hugely, you know, as I say, it's the pivotal point of the movie. And it really is, um, it was so important to get someone who could deliver it. And the fact that we got former U.S. Secretary of Labor, Robert (laughs) Rice, is really, uh, it's an extra, I, you know, by the way, I think, that uh, you're going to see after, you know, our film, you know, has been having some success. And I think you're going to see a lot of copycats. You're going to see a lot of other movies coming out Mm -hmm. with former secretaries of labor cast in various parts. (laughs) I think it's going to be a trend. You know, did you in your wildest dreams ever think that when you made this, when you have, you know, that dialogue that, that Robert is speaking, you know, that it's up to us. You are the man. You must you must change. You know, you don't like it. You change the people in office. Did you ever have any idea that it would be so relevant in today's political climate? It was really, you know, it's interesting. I mean, these are, these are by the way, these are all really great questions. I applaud you. Um, so it's, it's very gratifying for us um, that you're, uh, but yes, it, it, it really is relevant. And one of the things is, you know, we made it, well, we, as Jake said, it took eight years. I, I did the monologue originally during, I think, the George W. Bush years. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, we've, <laughs> we had a whole other presidency, <laughs> you know, and uh, since then, as we made the film. And then we weren't sure when we were um, working with our wonderful distributor, we weren't sure whether it was going to come out before the election uh, last fall or after. So it turned out to be after. And the consequence is sort of, like you suggest, amazing because, I mean, it's always, I think, relevant of mm-hmm. You know, participate in government, take responsibility. Paying taxes is an important. Uh, it's it's an important expression. It's an important thing for us to do in our shared society. But to have it happen at a time when the president of the United States brags about not paying taxes and won't re- reveal his tax returns, the fact that we're at this incredibly you know fraught and difficult point in our in our in our political you know history is and. The taxes are really at the center of it. I mean, they're really, you know, I mean, it's at the center of, of so much. So I think, yeah, I, I actually, at first I was like, oh, man, I wish it would have come out before the election because I wanted it to come out sooner, you know. But then now that's coming out now, A, it's tax season, which is cool, and B, it's like, as you say, super relevant. Well, <laughs> you know, yeah. and as I, as I was watching it, because so many of the things that we're hearing now with executive orders and things that are going to be stricken, you know, the National Endowment of the Arts, you know, wants to say bye-bye to that. All of these things that are funded through tax dollars. Yeah, absolutely. You met, you asked the question if we thought, if we thought in our wildest dreams that it would be this relevant. I mean, I mean, you know, in a way that was, I didn't know it would be this relevant, but I certainly feel like felt the need to make, um, you know, in some ways you could call this a pro-tax romantic comedy. And I thought that the story of how you do something, you know, I'm a, I, I think politically quite often. But what's fascinating about this is that it's not overtly political in a way, but it, it certainly has a sense of, um, of, of politics in it. Um, in a way that is, to me, is comedic and personal. And that was joyful to me as a filmmaker, you know, because so often I work in the sort of broad political 
you know, uh, world. And this was just joyful to be able to do it, to tell a personal story that had some of the same DNA in it. We like being sneaky. We like, we like getting at political things that we really care about, but through quirky, neurotic experiences that, <laughs> that seem like they're not going to lead to that. You know, I've got to ask you, Jacob, about the editing. You've got your three editors, uh, Lisa Fruckman, Dan Hayes, Rick LeCompre, and the editing here, because of the, co- the comedic element, it, it has to be rapier. It has to be spot on. How challenging yeah. was it finding those beats in the editing process? You know, it's 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 a really insightful question, and the 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 simple truth is, um, you know, they were all, you know, very talented editors, and we needed that. We needed every bit of that talent, and it took us a long time to find the tone of this because the comedy is it's not sort of in that um, usual rhythm that you might think of a mm-hmm. bum joke. Yeah. It's more in the um, in the whole overall rhythm of the story. It needs to feel fast and snappy, and you need to sort of stay ahead of things in a certain way and you need to bounce back and forth from live performance to scripted scenes so it was very very challenging and really we didn't really find the film until the end in a way you know it was an eight-year process and i would say for seven years of that process it didn't it didn't work super well so each one of them i think brought something special to the equation absolutely finished the film lisa fruckman really sort of helped us sort of zero in and focus a story that to me felt like a little less focused before she came in mm-hmm. but you know it was I the think closer. that it's a credit to them all actually yeah that it came out and it really is it, it, it's a matter it's it's really as as you know and as people probably but it's a matter really of a frame here and a frame there quite often of of what actually makes the flow work between these two very different shoots between these two very different you know ways places really the onstage solo performance and the dramatized performance Mm-hmm. Now you know you, you've got these real. You've got a very stylized look here. You cover multiple decades, um, but then you've got your flashbacks and a couple of those dream sequences that Josh has. How did you yeah. decide? Especially, you know, some of them they got the beautiful animated golden tones, and you know, then <clears throat> young Josh with dad, and so you take us in and out. But those have a very specific look, different from your other dramatized sequences. How did yeah. you decide on the look for each of those? Because there is a differential between them as well. Well, you know, it's a, it's a really it's a really insightful, you know, again, a, a good point. Um, part of it is uh, is purely was purely um, practical. We didn't have the resources to go to 1964 New York and shoot it like 1964 New York. So we had to sort of dream it up in a way. And part of it was that we really wanted to stay, but the story version, the story answer is we really needed to stay in the character's head. You really need to see the world as if Josh is, you're in his brain, in, mm-hmm. not in a direct way, but in a kind of way that feels like you're seeing it as he would see it. And, and that so is a scary that gave thought. gave us a license to, um, to, you know, make some fanciful animation sequences and to add some of those golden tones in a certain way, because that's really how the character is perceiving those moments. Um, but we needed yeah. to contrast that with something real, and that was important, that they'd have all of those different aesthetics throughout the film. Yeah, and, and those were all executed, by the way, by these two brilliant guys uh, called Idle, who called themselves Idle Hands. Um, they, they did all of that stuff for us, and they're geniuses. Now, Josh, did you have any input 
into the look of these sequences, or did all of that go, was that all just put into Jacob's hands? Well, I have some in this, you know, in the script, um, I describe, like when I just, I describe the, I didn't have the idea of like sort of the, I don't think the pop-up or anything, but I basically just, I don't remember exactly what I wrote, um, but I, I described a kind of dreamlike, as you say, a fantasy world, because uh, for me, um, this guy lives in his fantasy world, and one of the things that needs to happen for him to be whole is for the fantasy world and the external world to combine somehow. Um, so I wrote a little bit of it, but I would say almost entirely it was Jake and then those Idle Hands guys. Wow. Now, you know, the big question, you know, everybody always wants to know when you have siblings working together, who was right, who was wrong, who would win out, and were there times <laughs> you wanted to kill each other? Um, oh, this is a really going to be a really disappointing answer. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, we, we, we get along fabulously. I think we, we've made two movies together, I believe. If I'm counting correctly, and Jake, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. I believe we had one kind of argument um, over the <laughs> nine or ten years of making films together. Um, we, I, I think, you know, we have very different points of view, and I think that tension is really productive. I mean, not always. We have a lot of things we share, me and Jake. But, but um, it's a, it's talk about dream. I was just talking about a dream world and dream sequence. It's really it's a dream for me to have my you know little brother not only be so brilliant a filmmaker, but also to be able to work with him and to work with him, you know, as, as he's so, I mean, he's, I'm a bit older than he is. Although if you were to see us side by side, you'd think I was much younger. I'm joking. No, <laughs> but, but, but to have, you know, like to have my, you know, my brother who's, you know, 13 years younger than me and to see him, well, starting with our Haiku Tunnel movie as a young man, have just all of the authority and the leadership to direct, to, you know, to go back and forth with me and with everybody else that a director has to do. It's really, it's really something else. So I'm sorry, I, if you would like, we can lie and say that we're, we're at each other's throats all the time and, uh, and it's terrible and, and we haven't talked for years, but the truth is what I said. No, I think people well, that, think people will be happy to hear that, but I want to hear what Jake has to say about this. <laughs> you can totally well, contradict me. Yeah, well, I was going to joke and you know give the exact opposite answer about how we're always at each other's throat, but um, but the, the the real story and you, you get it, it ties into your last question is um, working with Josh is incredibly collaborative. It felt like sort of um, the finding of the film as a director is sometimes a very lonely process because you feel like you have to drag everybody else you know into your vision, and in this film. And working with Josh, I feel like it really is dragging it into our vision, in mm -hmm. a way. Um, it wasn't so much that, uh, that Josh was, you know, um, the, the writer and I was the director, so much as we were kind of making the film together. And my sensibility tends to be much more visual, and Josh's tends to be much more written down. So what tends to happen is, you know, he would, you know, have, or not written down, but verbal. So... I would have a visual take on how I thought my experience of watching him speak should be portrayed. And it was my job to kind of, you know, figure that out, that balance you were talking about early in the, earlier in the discussion between the scripted scenes and the, and the, and the drum and the live scenes. 
also the the aesthetic of the flashbacks and stuff. A lot of that was stuff that I had, you know, the sort of lead role on. But I'd say that the whole film, in a really pleasurable way, felt like a collaboration. And that's the best part of working with your brother. Well, guys, unfortunately, yeah, it, it, we're out of it time. Really, it's so much fun. We're <laughs> out of time today. Ah. <laughs> This has been an absolute delight. I can't thank you both enough. Please tell me you come back on the show again, especially, you know, you, Jake, when you get Saving Capitalism done. Absolutely. And, and, and it's a pleasure and if, talking and to you. If I come back on, if I, come back on I, I promise not to try to hit, hit the mute button in the middle of a, of a phone call in, which I realize now is, is, is not the right way to go. <laughs> well, even though you hit the mute button, you're still allowed to come back, Josh. Oh, you're so forgiving. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Jacob Kornbluth, Josh Kornbluth, Love and Taxes. It's available now. And that is all the time we have today, Brian. Yes? Yes, nodding his head. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 